I would like to uh, I would like to do something a little different before we go to prayer this morning, uh, and uh, it might have uh, well, it won't have anything to do with the Sunday school lesson. All right, but I'm just curious from some of the experiences that you folks have had. Uh, yesterday we celebrated celebrated maybe not the best word. We remembered the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 experience. And uh, I would like for any of you to just tell me, uh, tell us where you were, what you were doing uh, on that morning when you first heard about the situation. It's interesting that how the way our memory works, uh, uh, you can't tell me what happened two days later in the morning but you can tell me that particular situation. So if, uh, if some of you would, uh, just go ahead and uh, lay it on us and uh, we'll, uh, we'll find out what, uh, what our memory tells us. Yes, ma'am, go ahead. We were in uh, t uh, Tacoma, Washington, at my husband's brother's house, and they had a motor home and that's where they put us up. That was their guest house, and so we were there and at uh, seven o'clock in the morning, Ace, my brother-in-law, taps on our bedroom door and all he says was, turn on the TV. Well, from there on, we couldn't get out for two days because of flying and right, everything right. else. So we were away from home. Yep, yep. Remember it clearly. Interesting. Go ahead. I was, at, I was working at the time and I remembered one of the co-workers talking to her father, trying to talk him into going to Disneyland, but he was afraid to fly. <laughs> and then he heard about this plane crashing into the towers. And then he really became afraid to fly, yes. <laughs> and, then, and then my, uh, my co-worker, her daughter was in one of the towers, and she couldn't get in touch with her. She was able to get out of the towers, and I guess there was, you know, the sprinklers came off and there was dust everywhere. She was able to get out. Uh, she worked for IBM, and she was there for a conference. She was just the floor under where it hit. Wow. I mean, she... Oh, my goodness. But she survived. Isn't that amazing? Wow. That's amazing. Anybody else? Well, I was getting ready for work, and I turned on the news. And you never got to work? No, I got to work. I worked at a Christian bookstore at the time. Oh. That was attached to an anorexia and bulimia center. And we had a conference room right next to the bookstore, and we had a one of those old big screen TVs in the, and that conference room was used by every employee for lunch because we had the TV on. But I watched the second plane hit the top. Yes. The tower. And my friend Janet, her cousin, was Port Authority, and he passed in the South Tower. Hmm. Wow. He was helping people out, and he was in it when it collapsed, and they never found it. Wow. Go ahead. I was sitting out at the airport waiting for a flight <clears throat> to go to New Orleans to a nursing conference, and we didn't. We knew nothing. They just shut the monitors off, and they just kept saying, flights have been delayed, flights have been delayed. And we, I bet we sat there for an hour and a half not knowing what was going on. TVs weren't on or anything like no, that, so. No, they, they, I guess they didn't want anybody to know what was happening in the air. And pretty soon they canceled the flights. 
That's amazing. That I was just I was not in the air. Yes. Well, Ken's brother Doug was at an airport. He was on a layover, decided he would call Ken and just chat. And Ken says, you don't know what's going on, do you? And mm -hmm. he said, no. And Ken told me, he said, you better go to the rental I said, rental run, car. To, run to a car rental place as fast as you can. Because right. mm -hmm. he had to get to Detroit. And so he did rent a car along with five other men to get to Detroit. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of interesting. Wow. wow. He might tell you that this morning, but mm -hmm. if if... If he tells you that, act surprised. Okay? <laughs> act surprised. <laughs> Go ahead, uh, Luis. I was getting off uh, early um, from sleeping, and uh, my one of my sons says, "Hey, Dad, a plane hit a, a tower in New York." I said, "What?" And then I, when I saw it, um, to be big, small, you know, big mess. So yes. it was very surprising. Anybody else? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I live in New Mexico, so and Nancy lives in Maryland, and I, um, and so I, because she was in that area, I went. I was trying to get a hold of her, and there was there was no way I could get through. I mean, there, the circuit was completely completely too jammed. Busy. Yes. Yes. I finally got in. She was at work, and I talked to Steve, uh, her husband, and. Um, we're, t we're talking and he says, oh my goodness, they must have hit the, the Pentagon. Because he said they were seeing smoke coming up. Um, it, it happened just right when we were talking. And so I called my brother who doesn't like to get, he's retired, didn't want to like get up till noon or more. And I was like, he's got to skip the sleeping. It's like, you know, we're, this country's being attacked. I really think we need to get up. <laughs> yes. Anybody else? From a kid's perspective, my kids are looking at me going, Mom, what's 9-11 mean? Mm -hmm. So Tim and I have had some in-depth conversations over the last couple yeah. of days about yep. it. Because they have, I mean, they're only 11 and 12, and they still don't really understand. Their schools are not telling them. And that was my daughter's 18th birthday. Oh. Wow. Because it's yeah, it's, it's pretty sobering, yeah. pretty sobering. I had, I had an, er, go ahead. No, I just, I was in a college class. I'd gone back to college and the professor came in, canceled the class and we all went up to commons and watched TV. Watched TV yeah. All the kids just sit there and just stun quiet. I had a early morning paper route at the time. Uh, I had years ago, years prior to that, I, I thought, you know, I, I grew up, my brother and I had an early morning paper route and every, every child needs to go through the early morning paper route experience. <laughs> at least once. And so, yes. <laughs> and so uh, I had the early morning paper route. The only problem is all of my children left and I was stuck with it. So I had the early morning paper route that morning, and it was a Tuesday morning. Back then, we had a WANA on Monday night. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, uh, I, I, I kind of jokingly say that Monday night, I went to, 
I went to bed later than a man of God should go to bed. How's that? And, uh, but I still had to get up at 4.30, deliver the papers, and, uh, and I did. Well, because I got such little sleep that night, uh, I went back to bed. And uh, after the paper route, it was about 6.30 that I went back to bed. And my wife came in and did something she had never done before, and she has never done since. <laughs> and she said, Ken, you need to get up and watch TV. <laughs> she has never said that since. She had never said that up till that time. But... <laughs> Now she doesn't even have to tell me to watch TV. I just automatically do it because I'm remembering that admonition on her part to always watch TV. It's her fault. That's pretty thin. That's pretty thin. <laughs> Anybody else? We're, uh, we're, uh, we're trading stories about what, uh, what we were doing on the morning of the first 9-11. You remember where you were? Oh, yeah, I was getting ready to go to my golf club. Your what club? Golf? It was a ladies' golf club. I was getting ready that morning. And did you? I always turn the TV on. I watch TV from the time I get up to the time I go to bed. <laughs> See, there we go. Especially now. <laughs> All right. Let's... Uh, yes, I rest my golf game. Did you ever... You did go to your golf game that day? There was a lot of tears. Did you... Uh, did you have any triple bogeys that day? Probably all. <laughs> okay. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. Thank you that as a country we have known your protection uh, over the years, and we appreciate so much the fact that we can be here today and we can look back and see your faithfulness to each of our lives individually. We thank you as well, our Father, for your faithfulness with regard to this ministry and for the celebration that, that uh, we are going to be involved in today. We thank you from the depths of our heart, our Heavenly Father, for the scriptures that you have left to us to guide our thinking, to guide our conduct. May this day be a day that is memorable for each of us. May this day also be a day that is motivational in our uh, experience as children of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It has been a few weeks since we uh, uh, were here uh, with James, so let me quickly do some review before we get uh, to where we are headed today. Uh, first of all, the book of James is written to dispersed believers. Uh, James is the 20th book in our New Testament. And I am suggesting to you that as the 20th book, we might possibly think that it was written late. But in actuality, most Bible scholars believe that because of the content and the way it all sits out, it was probably written very, very soon after the Lord ascended back into heaven. In fact, some have suggested within a year or two after the church began on the day of Pentecost, and uh, the early part of the book of Acts. When you come to the book of James, uh, we discover that the emphasis is on trials. 
And he starts out by telling us that we ought to have two attitudes with regard to trials. Number one, we should welcome them. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation, diverse trials. And then he goes on and says, now when you get into trials, don't blame God because uh, that's the natural tendency to do. God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't put me through this. And of course, that is generally the attitude that we might have. However, after he introduces that concept, I am suggesting to you that the outline of the book is found in chapter one, verse 19 and 20. And that is, we are to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And that is the outline of the book. And he's going to tell us in the different sections of the book, how we can be swift to hear, how we can be slow to speak, how we can be slow to wrath. And that, of course, is the emphasis. So under the swift to hear section, the first part is it is more than mere listening. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Then he goes on and he said, it is more than mere morality. Uh, we just don't say, all right, I'm a Christian now and that's all I have to do. Uh, no, there are things that are in our re we are responsible as far as our behavior is concerned. The section that we're going to be looking at today specifically is the fact that it is more than passive faith, more than passive faith. And we'll explain a little bit of what that means. When we come to James chapter two, verse 14 to 26, it is one of the most, number one, controversial passages in the New Testament. Number two, it is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to understand. I am personally inclined to think that one of the things that need to be kept in mind is that it is written to born again believers. I do not believe anywhere in the book that he is questioning their faith. I believe that in every part of the book, he acknowledges that they are children of God, part of the family of God, but what he wants to do is to motivate them to act like it. He wants to motivate them to the kind of conduct born-again believers ought to have. And so we have 15 uses of the word brethren. Uh, and obviously the word brethren is kind of a generic term, which means all believers. One of the key issues in the book of James is the word saved. And I am suggesting to you that the word saved, you always have to ask yourself, what are you saved from? What are you saved from? The word saved is a polymorphic word. And when we say polymorphic word, it depends on the context of the word saved as to what it means. You're gonna save the forest. You're going to save something in your hope chest. You're going to save the, uh, you know, all this, saved is a polymorphic word. Look at the context to determine what you're saved from. 
And then beware of what I am calling, and a lot of other scholars, not that I'm a scholar, but a lot of scholars say, beware of illegitimate totality transfer. What we mean by that is that it has one meaning, and that one meaning is something that is true in every single place the word is used. No, it's, there's a variety of meanings, so that's what you look for in the word saved. For example, in the word, in the, uh, in the book of James, the word save is used five times. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. He's talking to born-again believers. And what is he saying? He says, I want you to take the scriptures. I want that you to have them become part of your life. And what, the, what is that going to do? It's going to save your life from either physical death or uselessness. And we went through a bunch of Old Testament passages with regard to that. The passage that we're looking at today, what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And the expected answer is no, faith cannot save him. Well, what is he being saved from? He's being saved from being unprofitable and unproductive as a Christian. And then, of course, there are a couple others that, uh, that we'll just uh, gloss over here real quick. The next one that we look at, sinning believer from physical death or spiritual insignificance. All right, the three or four main approaches to this passage. And... Uh, I am partial to the final one. Partial to the final one. Works are essential because we are justified. Works are essential because we are justified. When God saves us and declares us righteous and forgives us our sins, we become, as it were, new creatures in Christ. We have a new potential and a new capacity for how we're going to live life. And we don't do works to prove that we are saved. We do good works because we are saved. We're new people. We're new people. And God says, look what I've done for you. Here's the way I want you to live. And so that is the approach that I am taking. Now, one of the interesting things about the book of James is that it has 108 verses. Would you believe that James has more imperatives in his book than almost any other book in the New Testament? 54 imperatives. In the original Greek, uh, there is the indicative mode, there's the subjunctive mode, there's the optive mode, and I know that you don't, I'm not trying to blow your way on this, but then you have the imperative mode, and it depends on the way a word is spelled in the original Greek as to what mode it is in. Well, it's interesting that in the book of James, there are 54 imperatives, things that he wants us to do. 
A lot of people come to the book of James and they say it is pastoral. That is, he is talking to people as a pastor. I am going to make a suggestion that if James were to preach at churches today, he would probably offend a lot of Christians. <laughs> and the reason for that is he would say, look, folks, you're supposed to be doing this. Why aren't you doing this? I want you to do this. This is what God wants us to do. Imperatives. Now, these are things he has already told us earlier in the book, and there are a lot more, but I've just picked these four out. He says in chapter 1, verse 26, I want you to bridle your tongue. Uh, all of us are very much aware that loose lips, what? Sink, Sink ships. ships. And boy, is that ever true as a born-again Christian. We have got to watch what we say. And my goodness, long as you're alive, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. We understand that. Another thing is he wants us to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Chapter 1, verse 27. And he says, this is part of being a born-again believer. And he is saying it to us as a command. And he's saying, folks, this is not optional. Because one of the things that all of us are very much aware of is we can sure become caught up in our own schedule, in our own distresses, in our own life, and just kind of push the rest of the world out and not worry about them. They say that it's important for believers to think of other people and help wherever you can possibly help. And uh, it's not optional. Remain unstained by the world. And then don't play favorites. We looked at that passage a couple weeks ago. Now, as we come to James chapter 2, verse 14, down to verse 26. And if you have your Bible, take it and turn to James chapter... See, look right here. I've even got pages falling out of my Bible, so... Time for a new Bible. But James chapter 2, I'm looking at verse 14. If you look at verse 14, down to verse 26, it is one section. And he is suggesting to us a concept, and I am inclined that one of the things James does in James chapter 2 is he gives us a final illustration to make his point. And if we don't get it, in the previous section, he says, all right, here's the final concept I want you to remember. And that is, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without deeds is dead. Now, forgive this illustration, but you have a body minus the spirit. Do you still have a body? Yes, you do. But it's lifeless. The parallel is you have faith 
minus works, what's the parallel? It's dead faith. Another thing he goes on to point out, and this is an illustration, what is meant by the word dead? Uh, These are the various options. Dead means inactive, useless, unprofitable, non-beneficial. I am suggesting to you that it does not mean non-existent. It's still there, it just doesn't have any vitality or life. All right? As we go on, that's the illustration. Let me give you a couple other illustrations. We looked at these a couple weeks, several weeks ago. A car without gasoline, it's still a car, but will it run? No, it won't. A car without a battery to start it is still a car, but you're never going to get it going. Another way to look at this is a bike without a rider is still a bike, but it's just sitting there. I've got a couple of bikes in my garage. I have a mountain bike and a road bike. And when they're just sitting there, they're not doing anything. Particularly, they have a flat tire like I got yesterday as I was out riding. It's useless. You've got to have a functioning bike and you've got to have a rider on the bike for the bike to do what it's supposed to do. So, I am suggesting the key to understanding this section James is concerned with the profitability of their faith, not with the existence of their faith. They have it. He wants it to be profitable. Is it a working faith or a worthless faith? Uh, Let me pass over that real quick. Key principle of James. Faith must have works or deeds of obedience to have vitality and usefulness. That's important. Just because you are a born-again believer and you're on your way to heaven doesn't mean, aha, I'm on my way to heaven, that's all I have to do. No, God wants us to make a difference in our conduct in the world as we interact with the world and other believers. Faith will have no value without works to keep it profitable. Faith without works is worthless. All right, now as we come to this section, I want to underscore, this is a tough section. I am also going to go on record as to say, I'm trying to explain this the best I can my explanation may not be the right one. I know that's, that's a tough one. Isn't it? it may not be the right one. It's the one I am most comfortable with now in light of the entire flow of the book written to believers to make them productive in their Christian experience. So we start out with two opening questions Then we have a fundamental premise in verse 14. Let me read the fundamental uh, premise. Verse 14, 8, 
excuse me, 17. Even so, faith, if it has no deeds, is dead being by itself. There is a connection between faith and works. You can't just have one or the other. They've got to be connected to be vital and important. He goes on and he introduces an objection. In other words, James is saying, all right, I know what some of you guys are thinking. Let me just introduce something to you to think about because you probably don't really think that there needs to be a connection between faith and works. And then he has the reply to the objection, starting with verse 20. And look, if you will, at verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without deeds is useless? So you got to have faith and works together, otherwise it's dead. you got to have faith and works together, otherwise it's useless. Has no value. Then he gives us two illustrations, one from Abraham, one from Rahab, and then he has the closing illustration about the body and the spirit. So let's go for just a few minutes and look at this section. You will notice that in verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if Someone says, okay, so someone is saying something. If you look down at verse 18, but someone may well say. So you've got two people saying something, and what is it that they're saying? Someone one, are you getting this? Someone, number one, says faith and works have no connection. Faith and works have no connection. Someone number two says, and this is an objection to what is stated in verse 17, that faith by itself is useless without works. Now I want to say something. The interesting thing is this passage would be a lot easier to understand if we did not have verse 18 and 19 in the passage. I could wish, now don't question my, my orthodoxy here, I could wish that verse 18 and 19 were not in the Bible. I could wish that because it is undoubtedly the most confusing two verses in the Bible. Very confusing. However, if we take them out, the meaning of this passage does not change at all. If we leave them in, the meaning of the passage doesn't change at all. The emphasis is faith and works have an inseparable link if you are a born-again believer. Let me read 18 and 19. 
And if anybody wants to explain it, uh, except my wife, my wife and I have had been having debates the last couple of days as to, you know, iron sharpens iron. I'm trying to dull her sword, but she keeps coming after me. All right, verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without the deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. What is he saying? Can, is, is it possible to figure out what he's saying there? Again, if we didn't have those verses in the Bible, it would mean the same thing from one to the next. It, does anybody want to take a stab at it? Or do I do? All right, let me go on. You can, you can throw daggers at me later, all right? Let's look at what someone number one says. I have faith, but I do not have works. The response in verse 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothes and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what? Use is that. What's the benefit of that? If you say you have faith and you do nothing, is there any benefit to that? And the answer, of course, is no. What benefit is it of uh, if your faith has no action to a fellow believer who's in need? And the conclusion is faith by itself, verse 17, is unproductive. It's by itself. Oh, I have this solid doctrinal statement that I'm following. But that's going to stay up here. It's never going to translate out to any of my conduct, whatever. James says, wait a minute. It can't be like that. That belief system has got to translate into conduct, behavior, obedient activity. And what has been the obedient activity that he's already told us about? Keep yourself unspotted from the world. Visit widows and orphans. Don't play favorites. Those are the things he says, I want you to do. This is part of being a believer because of what God has done for you. Any questions about this? First of all, does it make sense? This part makes sense. The next part, are you ready? <clears throat> Here we go. Notice I've been quiet the whole time. <laughs> Dave, you can talk to me later. <laughs> hey, out of respect, I will. <laughs> Someone number two. It is an objection to what James has said in verse 17. 
What has James said in verse 17? You got to have both. You got to have both for it to be productive, for it, for it to be useful. And so he is saying, you, James, have faith. And I, the one who has debates or questions, have deeds. And then he goes on, and we're going to stop here for a minute. And uh, again, these are the two verses that are tough, tough, tough to understand. What is the nature of the objection? Number one, it rejects what James is saying in verse 17. He's rejecting that there is a connection between the two. Everybody understand that? He, that's what he's going to object to. You're, you're saying this, you've got faith, I have works, they're not connected. Because you can have faith and I can have works, no connection. Now, the next thing, here is where the debate rages. I'm going to be perfectly upfront with you. I don't understand this. It will take a, a better brain than mine to figure it out. I cannot tell you how many interactions I have had reading commentary. No one can explain this to my satisfaction. Maybe my brain is just too small. I don't know. It borders on absurdity. What this man is going to say borders on absurdity. It makes no logical sense. Now, uh, let me make a very interesting, and maybe I'm going to, I, I'm, I'm some of you are going to say I'm bailing, all right? I may be. How many of you ever heard of the little phrase, redactio ad absurdum? How many of you have ever heard that phrase before? David, would you like to tell us what it means? I forgot, but it's Latin for something's absurd if you uh, it's, you make it out loud. It's speaking hyperbole, hyperbole to get. Uh, you know what? That's as close. Yeah. That's that's as good and as close. Mm -hmm. Let me give you some mm -hmm. illustrations. Mm -hmm. All right. <clears throat> and you know these are absurd, mm -hmm. but you hear them. Mm -hmm. Two wrongs make a right. Mm -hmm. Is that absurd? Absolutely absurd. But there are a lot of people that think that. Here's another one. If we eliminate the police, there will be less crime. <laughs> hey, that's what's going on in our country right now. That's exactly what's... It's absurd. It makes no logical sense. Uh, if we eliminate laws, there will be less crime. Absurd. Of course there will. <laughs> okay, this, this is right up to date. Are you ready? This is hot off the press. 
if we give terrorists their own country, they won't bother us. <laughs> are there people that think that? Yes. yes, there are. Is that absurd? It is absolutely absurd. If we reduce taxes, the government will be able to pay for more programs. <laughs> or how about this one? If we give the government all they want, they will spend it wisely. <laughs> hey, are there people that think that? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've got one for you. Go ahead, David. Military intelligence. <laughs> you know, I, I've heard that one. <laughs> yes. Now, be careful because my son-in-law, uh, he's been involved in that. By the way, this is a parenthesis. We got word Friday morning from our daughter in Los Angeles whose husband is a major in the Air Force. Lieutenant Colonel. Lieutenant? He's a lieutenant colonel now. Oh. Well, he will be a lieutenant colonel later on, but oh. he's right now he's a major and he's, he's destined to be a lieutenant colonel. He gets to work Friday morning and he says, you will be deployed Sunday morning. Oh. She has two children and another one on the way right now. She's already had four miscarriages, and you know we're struggling with that. Now, he's being deployed to New Jersey, all right? Uh, you might say, oh, that's a relief. Why is he being deployed? He's being deployed so that he can oversee the placement of Afghan refugees in the United States. Hey, that's our military. Can you imagine? All right, a little bit more absurdum. Are you ready? If you're not happy with your current laundry detergent, try our new and improved laundry detergent. Um, that's kind of absurd. Military, Dave, you get the you get the trophy. <laughs> military intelligence. <laughs> All right, remember it's absurd. All right. The last thing is the conclusion and considered foolish. Notice what he says after this statement in verse 20. But are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow that faith without dirt deeds is useless? All right, let me quickly go to the next section. Remember, this is the absurd other side of the ledger, other side of the corn. You, James, have faith. I, the objector, have works. You show me your faith without works, which you think is impossible, because James says they're linked. I will show you my faith by my works, which I do not think is essential. Now, 
I don't get that. Is there anybody here that does get that? It makes no sense to me. I'd like to hear what Marshall thinks. How's that? I'd like to hear what Marshall thinks. <laughs> <laughs> I okay, I go to Bible study with Marcia and I get a lot out of what Marcia says. <laughs> hey, listen. When I'm married, I'm married up, all right? <laughs> I'm married up. The best thing you can do. I, in fact, we have a neighbor that just moved. And his wife insisted on fixing up the house and making it immaculate. She told me that we want you to have nice neighbors. That's why we're fixing up the house. And the new people have moved in. And sure enough. And her husband is a little bit reluctant about fixing up the house. And I said to him, I said, you've got to realize your wife is always right. And there are times you just have to turn her loose. Yes. And then you've got to realize that there are other times that your wife is always right and you have to hold her back. Anyway, she's always right. So here we go. Dear, do you dare? In fact, you have one minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think verse 18, someone will say, not to James, not to his argument, but someone will say to the person in verse 14 who is saying, Faith is all you need. You, you, this adding works to it, you know, no, we're saved by faith and they're so glad, these scattered Jews are so glad to be out from under the law, the sacrifices, the three trips to Jerusalem, <laughs> you know, all those works, they're free. And so faith is all you need. And people today are saying that, you know, I believe in God, that's enough. I don't have to go to church, help with the rescue mission and so on. So. Verse 18, someone is saying to that person, you have faith, but I have faith, but I have works along with faith. Show me your faith without your works. You can't do that. You can't show me your faith without works. But I will show you my faith by my works. And, and you know, demons also have faith, and they shudder. They, their faith produces something. And, and that's, you have to have something added to your faith to keep it alive, which is why James is going to give 54 commands. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> but is he giving the commands, David, to prove they're saved or Absolutely to? Absolutely not. It is the fruit. You, it is the fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I the vine, you're I have, the I have won him over. <laughs> he doesn't realize it, but I won him over. All right, let me, uh, now, if you want further explanation, uh, as she and I have been... <laughs> you have a great fellowship. <laughs> yeah, we, we can get along. She has her side of the bed, and I have mine, so go ahead. Uh, it's 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 monotheism but see you've got to realize the demons destiny has already been determined they are they do not have faith to be quote saved from hell they just have faith and that faith is 
hey, it causes them to shudder. It causes, let me, let, let me, let me quickly go through this. I am suggesting that the fundamental premise in verse 17 and the reply to the objection is, hey, you've got to have the link between the two. Then he gives us, uh, well, let me, let me skip over this. I am suggesting works invigorate faith, stimulate faith, prove vitality, energize, strengthen, makes faith useful, makes faith productive. That's what works do. If you just sit and do nothing, trust me, I, I will have to tell you as a pastor, one of the things I've seen is people that are completely inactive have a tendency to just drift away from the things of God. I, that's just the way it is, folks. That's just the way it is. So it's got to stay active. Key principle, uh, the obedient response to God's commands is essential for useful faith. It's the, the, it is vital for a believer to display deeds of obedience for their faith to have any value. There is a fundamental inseparable link between works and profitable faith. Be doers of the word and not just hearers. That's what he's saying. That's the whole premise. He goes on. Now, let me, if I may, well, let me uh, skip through this. We've already made this connection right here. Uh, Abraham, two Old Testament examples. Abraham's a pagan man from Ur of the Chaldees. He's the father of faith. He's also called a friend of God. When you look at his entire life, Abraham believes God way, way back here. 45 years later, he finally offers Isaac. Is he not saved until this point? No. He's saved, if you please, way up here. But finally, his faith is vindicated or perfected. It, it's displayed. Everybody can see it. And it's been displayed all the time. But this is the ultimate display of his faith. When you go to Rahab, Rahab is a, uh, how did I, oh, I'm sorry, went forward. Hagar, a harlot from Canaan. She receives the spies and she sends them out another way. The interesting thing about her is she, she receives the spies. A few weeks later, she helps the spies escape. Her faith is vindicated. And it didn't take long. All right, and the final thing is that this is the illustration right here. Faith has got to have works with it to have vitality in life. Uh, we're out of time, but if I can say, and I'm gonna borrow my brother's term, the takeaway, all right, the takeaway. You ready? The takeaway is inactivity in your Christian experience will cause you to become a dormant Christian. That's just the facts of life. All right. Hey, thank you, folks. Good interaction. Now you know that there can be peaceful coexistence between a man and a woman, despite the fact that one sees things from the English text and one sees things from the Greek text. No, that's not <laughs> Hey, thank you, folks. Appreciate it.